Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my privilege to lead us in our series called Ethics in Room 21C. And so if you have your Bible, why don't you grab that and turn to Exodus chapter 20. This sermon series, it's all about looking at the ethical principles laid out in the Ten Commandments, so ethics, and then talking about how do these apply to us in the 21st century. So ethics in 21C, 21st century. And as we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, we've, uh, we've covered most of them either last summer or this summer. Today we're going to be looking at the tenth and final one. But before we look at it, I just wanted to remind us of a few things about the Ten Commandments in general. And we talked about these last week, but I think it's helpful to remind, remind us of them again. The first thing that we talked about last week is how the Ten Commandments are not a way for us to earn God's favor or earn our own salvation. And I think it's important anytime we look at commands in Scripture to remember the motivation for obeying the commands that are there, right? Anytime we look at a command of Scripture as a way for us to try to earn God's favor or try to make ourselves good enough to, so that God will accept us, we're, we're getting something wrong when we go down that road. And so recognizing that the Ten Commandments are God's gracious gift, and, and He doesn't actually expect His people to do them perfectly before He saves them, No, he saves them and then gives them the Ten Commandments as a response to that salvation. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is related, and it's this, that the Ten Commandments are given in the context of God's relationship with his people. And I think it's important to recognize this because sometimes we think of the Ten Commandments as these kind of just, you know, abstract lists of do's and don'ts and things that we need to avoid. But God gives these commands in the context of his relationship with his people. And we realize that rules and relationships are not actually opposed to each other. You see, these rules are going to actually govern the relationship that God has with his people. And they're our way of expressing our thankfulness and our gratitude for what God has done for us. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is this, that these rules aren't arbitrary rules, right? Sometimes we think, well, Scripture just has a lot of rules because it likes to have rules. But what we realized, hopefully in the last number of weeks, and hopefully what we'll see today, is that there's nothing arbitrary about the commands that God gives. Uh, These commands reflect the heart of God. They reflect His character, and they show us the very best way to live. And so with those things in mind, let's pray as we begin our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who reveals yourself to us through your word. Father, we thank you that we don't have to guess who you are, that you show that to us. And so, Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would just give us open eyes, open ears. Father, that our hearts would be ready to accept what you have for us. Father, I pray that you would, in this time, just silence any distractions in our minds and our hearts and help us to just come before your word with full attention. Father, I pray that we'd be changed today because of what we hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting off, I want to ask a question. Show of hands, how many people in this room would consider themselves to be competitive? All right, some of you kind of are putting your hand up. You know, other people are getting nudged in the side because, you know, someone thinks you're competitive. A few of you are like really quick because, you know, the most competitive person in the room. Uh, believe it or not, I have been accused of being competitive in certain situations. Now, you might be saying, well, James, you're so easygoing, you're so, you know, happy-go-lucky, but no, in, in certain situations with the right people and in, in the right game, I can be a pretty competitive person. And what I've discovered or, or I've tried to find out is that it seems like there's two types of competitive people. Now, there might be more, there might be combinations, but there seems to be at least two kind of certain types of competitive people. The first kind of competitive person 
is the person that exerts a great amount of effort without necessarily a great amount of strategy, right? So if you've ever played sports with this kind of person, it probably drove you crazy because this is the person that doesn't know about positions, doesn't know about teammates, doesn't know about strategy. This is the person that, let's say you're playing soccer, this person will just chase the ball around for the entire 90 minutes, running as fast as they can, trying as hard as they can to get the ball from you, and then kicking it as hard as they can to the other team's net. Right? This is the kind of person, if you're playing baseball, even though they're supposed to be at first base, if a pop fly comes up to third base, they're going to run over there and try to catch the ball themselves because they are just so excited to play the sport and they just put so much effort into it. So that's the first kind of competitive person. Maybe we have some of those people here today. If that's you, we're so glad you're here. Uh, the second kind of competitive person is different. This kind of person doesn't necessarily want to put the most effort into the game they're playing, but they want to try to find some kind of competitive advantage any way that they can. So these people are really usually good at board games. And these are the kind of people that if you're playing a board game with them, they'll usually be the person holding the rule book and they've already read through it and they know it backward and forward. And at a certain point in the game, they're going to do something questionable and you're going to say, hey, you can't do that. And they'll look at the rule book and say, well, actually, the rules don't explicitly say that I can't do that. And then they'll get away with it. And it's, it's not very fun to play against these people because they're trying to exploit uh, the game in any way they can to get a competitive advantage. I'll give you another example of this. So have any of you ever heard of an egg drop competition? Everyone. Okay, great. So this is a competition where you're given some supplies, you're given some materials, and you're supposed to build a contraption around a raw egg. And then once you've done that, you're supposed to take your raw egg in the contraption up to a platform, and you're supposed to drop it off that platform onto the ground and hope that the egg doesn't break. If the egg breaks, you lose. If the egg doesn't break, you've succeeded. And so there was a man that was in one of these competitions, and this competition was a bit different in some ways. He was given 24 eggs, and he was told, as soon as you have one contraption that successfully lands, you're going to take that contraption, the judges are going to weigh the materials that you used, and the person at the end of the day with the lightest materials used is going to win the competition. And so the man who is the second type of competitive starts thinking about different ways he could try to win and, and succeed in this competition. And some of you right now are thinking, what would I do in this situation? How can I exploit the rules? And so this is what the man did. He asked the judges if he could go last in the competition, and the judges said, yeah, sure, you can go last. And so he's got that advantage already at the start. And what he realizes is that people are actually doing quite well, and some of the materials used to make the egg not break are so light that this man is worried that he's going to even have a chance. And so he comes up with this idea, though. He goes up to the platform, he takes his box of supplies and his box of eggs, and he does something that really catches people's attention. Catches people's attention. He takes a raw egg out of the box with nothing attached to it, and he just gently tosses it off the platform. And it splats on the ground, and it breaks. But he's still got 23 eggs to go. And what people realize is that he's aiming for this little patch of grass on the ground that is kind of angled at the right way, and it's kind of soft, and he's just kind of trying to toss it as soft as he can at the right angle to try to make it so that this egg doesn't break. And eventually, on the 11th or 12th try, he tosses an egg, it lands at just the right angle, that it ricochets off the grass, it rolls out, and it doesn't break. And so the man brings his egg to the judges, and he says, could you please weigh the materials used? And of course, it weighs zero pounds, zero ounces, and the man wins the competition. 
The next year, they changed the rules because <laughs> obviously he had kind of done something that was against the heart of the competition. And it's interesting because if you ask the question, did the man technically break any of the rules of the competition? The answer would be no. Right? Technically, he stayed within the limits of what was allowed and what was not allowed. But if you ask the question, did he kind of miss the point of what was going on? Then the answer would be, yeah, he kind of missed the point of the game. And I'm sure if you sat this guy down and you, you asked him the question, like, do you realize that you were kind of being a little bit sneaky and, and kind of going against what, what you're trying to do? He would probably say, yeah, I, I understand that that was what was happening. Right? He was technically not disobeying the rules of the game, but he was actually completely missing the point of it. And I bring this up because I think we can actually sometimes do the same thing when it comes to God's commands, where we can have this external obedience that technically doesn't break the rules, but actually completely misses the point. And it's interesting, when you look at the first nine commandments in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and you can read them for yourself just right now, you recognize that there's a lot of things that aren't explicitly covered in these commandments. Particularly when you look at the commandments that deal with human relationships, commands number five through nine, you recognize there's a lot of things that aren't specifically covered. You know, of course, a lot of the important things are. So it says things like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbors. So there's a lot of things that are covered. But when you think about it, there's a lot of things that aren't. And if a person wanted to, they could look at the first nine commandments and live their life in such a way that they would say, well, I'm technically not breaking any of these and yet completely miss the point of what they're going for. I'll give you an example of a case study. So picture a man in ancient Israel who's just heard the Ten Commandments and then the next day he goes out and does the following. So he's coming in from the field. He's uh, just had a long day at work and he sees his neighbor who he just absolutely despises. This is the neighbor that's always annoying him. He's always doing things that this man doesn't like. And so the man just is, is thinking all these negative thoughts about his neighbor. And he remembers that just a few weeks ago, someone had actually falsely accused his neighbor of something terrible. And this man just kind of laughed and didn't do anything about it. And as he passed him on the road that day, he kind of gave him a shove and said, watch where you're going and continued walking towards his house. When the man got home, he, you know, sitting in his, at his table, he looks out his window and he sees the neighbor on the other side out in his yard and he just absolutely despises this man as well. And so the man looks at him and he hates him because that man, that neighbor has everything that this man wishes he had. He has a better house than them. He has a, a family and this man doesn't have a family. He has more friends and they have more parties. And, and so this man sitting in his house and just thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if something terrible happened to my neighbor? Like, wouldn't it be so good if something, if something just terrible happened to him and he lost all these things that he had? Wouldn't, wouldn't that just be the best? And he's sitting there with resentment and bitterness in his heart towards his neighbor. Now, when you think about that man that I just described to you, and I ask the question, did the man break any of the Ten Commandments? We think about it for a second. We say, well, I guess technically he didn't really, right? We ask the question, did the man murder anyone? Well, no, he didn't murder anyone. Did he steal? No. Did he commit adultery? No. Did he bear false witness? Well, he allowed it to happen, but he wasn't the one himself that did it. And you recognize that if we're just talking about external conformity to these commands, this guy can actually say, well, I haven't broken any of these commands today. Now, the other question we might ask ourselves is, well, did the man miss the point of the commandments? Absolutely, he missed the point. And did this man's character reflect the character of God? 
Absolutely not. Right? And so we see that there's something in the commandments of Scripture that we can have this tendency to say, I, I'm going to obey in terms of the external commandment, but not really worry about what's going on the inside. And this is exactly where the 10th commandment comes in. And so we're going to read this together right now. It's on, uh, like I said, page 61 of your Bible is Exodus 20, verse 17. It says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now we should pause here for a second just to talk about that word covet because it's not a word we use very often today. This week I was trying to type a note on my phone. I had a thought about the sermon, so I typed in the word coveting. And every time I tried to type in coveting, it would always autocorrect to something else. Like it would say converting or conveying. It it wouldn't let me type coveting because it just assumed that nobody today really uses that word anymore. And so I had to go and manually change it back in. And, And so what does this word mean? What do we talk about when we say coveting? Well, at a really basic level, coveting is desiring something yearning for something, or sometimes even lusting after someone. It's this kind of word that talks about our desires. And, and although there's different ways that it can be used, the word can sometimes be used in, in a bit of a positive way in some context. And you know, we can talk about coveting someone's prayers as this way of saying that we want people to pray for us. But in, in most cases, and in this case for sure, it's used in a negative way to talk about desiring something that we shouldn't have or desiring something in the wrong way. And we'll talk a bit more about the nuances of that later on. But for right now, I want us to think about something that is different from this command from the other commands that come before it. You see, when it comes to coveting, it's actually something that we obey or disobey in our hearts and in our minds. With all the other commandments, it's actually something a little bit different. When it comes to stealing, stealing is something that you can get caught doing. Right? You think about you steal a chocolate bar, you steal a watch, you steal whatever. That's something that you can actually get caught doing because it's something people can see and observe. We think about murder, the same thing. Adultery, bearing false witness. These are all things that other people can see and you can get caught doing. When it comes to coveting, it's different because it's actually something that people can't see us doing. It's something that happens inside of us. And, and people might look at you and they might see your facial expression and assume you're coveting. They might say, I think you're coveting this, but it's actually something that they can't see because it happens inside. It's something actually that only God can see. And I think what this does is it shows us something important. And, and your outline says this, God cares about the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, when you compare the Ten Commandments to a lot of the other ancient law codes at the time, a lot of other ancient law codes would stop at right and wrong behavior, right? So they would say, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, you must do this, you must not do that, and they would often stop at right and wrong behavior. So in other words, as long as you can keep your behavior together, you could follow those laws perfectly. Uh, some law codes would go further. They talk about right and wrong speech. So they say these are the kinds of things you, can, you should say or these are the kinds of things you shouldn't say. But it was very unusual for a law code to talk about what was going on in the heart. But this is exactly what the 10th commandment does. It says God actually cares more about just externals. He actually cares about what's going on inside of us and the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you, th- so you see, sometimes as people, we have this propensity towards being really good at keeping the externals of the law, really good at following rules and making sure we're not breaking them, but actually having a hard time making sure what's going on inside actually matches up with that. 
We see this all over scripture. We see this especially in the ministry of Jesus. And the crazy thing about it is it was usually the really religious people that were the worst at this. Right? Jesus was usually at odds the most with the people that were considered the most religious in their day because those were the people that were the best at keeping the rules. And sometimes people say Christianity has so much rules. Well, go back to Jesus' day. They had rules way more than we have today. And there was people that were so good at keeping the rules that they could, uh, they had the laws in the Old Testament. They had the laws about the laws and the laws about the laws about the laws. There were just so many rules and there were so many people that were just so good at keeping these laws meticulously so that in their external life, there was never going to be a slip up. They're always going to be in conformity to these laws and not break them. But what Jesus noticed is often the people that are the best at keeping the rules and best at keeping the laws externally often lack that inner character that the law was actually calling for. So you have a picture of the outside that's a lot different than the picture of what's going on inside, and Jesus calls this out. We have a really memorable passage in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus calls out some of the religious leaders. He says that they're hypocrites, and he uses phrases like this. He says, you're like a cup that's clean on the outside, but inside full of filth. Just think about that image for a second, right? If anything, if you, if you want a cup to be dirty anywhere, you want the cup to be dirty on the outside because that doesn't really affect when you're drinking. But Jesus says, no, you're a cup that's just beautifully polished on the outside, maybe even ornately decorated. He says, but inside it's full of filth. And he's saying, you need to change something so that the inside matches the outside. He goes on to say that you're like whitewashed tombs. Again, this imagery of of beauty on the outside, even this ornate decoration on the outside, but inside it's full of death and dead people's bones. And of course, Jesus isn't telling them to start, you know, breaking commandments and start looking terrible on the outside, but he's saying your internal character must match your external keeping of these commandments if it's going to meet anything at all. And so Jesus addresses this all over the place, and he does this especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he does there is he challenges people who are kind of holding on to that idea of, I didn't technically break the commandments, but I'm completely missing the point of them. And so Jesus challenges people. He says things like this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. See, Jesus is saying, it's it's not enough for you to say, I didn't murder anyone. He's like, that's actually a pretty low bar in terms of a standard. Jesus is saying, as soon as your heart turns to anger towards your brother, as soon as your heart turns in hatred towards your brother, you're already going down that path, and you're no longer reflecting the heart of your heavenly Father. And so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. I say to you, there's actually a higher standard that God's people are called to if they're going to reflect the heavenly Father. And he goes on, he talks about adultery, he talks about swearing falsely, he talks about other things. And what we see here in the 10th commandment is the same kind of thing that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. The 10th commandment says it's not enough just to say that you haven't stolen anything from your neighbor. As soon as your heart's desires, as soon as you start craving those things and thinking about those things and coveting those things, you're already going down that road. He's saying it's not enough to say, though, I haven't committed adultery with my neighbor's wife. As soon as you start thinking those thoughts and going down those roads, you're already on the wrong path. And see, what happens so often is that when we covet something, coveting often leads to other sins in our life. It's usually the beginning of a process that's going to lead us down a dark path. And it's, it's often going to be the case uh, just generally that any external sin that we commit 
begins with the process that happens in our mind and in our heart. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, okay, if this is a serious thing and if coveting is going to lead to these other things, well, what counts as coveting and what is just wanting something that's, that's more neutral? In other words, it can't always be wrong to want something. So what kind of sets something apart as coveting and, and when should I be extremely worried? And what we'll do is we'll talk about different scenarios. And what I want to do is start with some of the more extreme examples, talk about situations where there's surely coveting going on and things we should definitely avoid. But I also want to talk about situations that are more ambiguous. Because reality is sometimes we, we don't know what to do with the thoughts that come inside our head. We think, you know, maybe this desire, it's, maybe it's good or maybe it's bad. Or maybe it's a good desire, but it comes from a wrong motivation. How am I supposed to, to know how to handle these situations? What's the wisdom in those scenarios? But to start off, let's talk about the worst case scenario. At its worst, coveting, it's an obsessive desire that won't be satisfied unless other commandments are broken. In other words, thinking about it in in terms of if I'm going to get the thing that I desire, if I'm going to get the thing that I'm wanting, it means either that I'm going to break commandments or other people are going to have to break commandments, but something wrong is going to happen in order for me to get what I want. Uh, That's part of it. And the command also says, you shall not covet your brother or your neighbor's house or his wife or his anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so added to this is the idea that if you're going to get this thing, it means someone else is going to lose it. It means someone else is going to have to miss out or someone else is going to have to have something bad happen to them in order for you to get that. And, and putting these things together, we kind of see the, the, the wickedness that can, can become coveting or the wickedness that's inherent in coveting. And we can probably all think of examples of this in our own lives, but I want to just remind us of a couple from Scripture to kind of really show us and flesh out what this can all look like. So last week, we looked at the example of Naboth's vineyard. And you remember the story of King Ahab is in his palace, and he looks out, and he sees Naboth's vineyard, and he desires that vineyard. And we didn't really talk about that desire much last week because we were focusing on the fact that false witnesses were brought up against Naboth and the damage that that caused. But everything begins in this story with Ahab's coveting of Naboth's vineyard. He has this desire, and before that desire is fulfilled, all kinds of other commandments are broken. False witnesses come against Naboth. That's commandment number nine. Uh, Naboth is put to death. He's murdered. Ahab ends up having to steal the vineyard, essentially. And, And of course, Ahab can't have the vineyard without Naboth losing it. All these things happen because Ahab looked at this vineyard and he coveted it. He desired it wrongly and he was willing to do whatever it took to get it. Imagine how things would be different if he was able to kind of take that thought and and put it under control and and take it captive. Another example we see is King David, another popular king in the Bible. And David, of course, has a really good reputation except for one incident when it comes to a woman named Bathsheba who he saw bathing on her roof. And David had this lustful coveting of of Bathsheba. He desired her, and he was willing to do whatever it took to fulfill that desire. And so he committed adultery with her, and he slept with her. And when she became pregnant, he was willing to do whatever it took to cover that up, including lying and deceiving and even having Uriah killed, all to cover his mistake, although, of course, it didn't actually cover it. It just made it all the more worse. And it's interesting, again, when you think of the story of David and Bathsheba, oftentimes we just kind of glance over that, that idea that David was lusting after her. But think about how everything starts from that moment. 
Coveting is so often this, this seed that, that is planted that leads to other sins being manifest in our life. And so if we're going to deal with sin generally, one of the things we need to pay attention to is what are the thoughts and what are the desires we're allowing our hearts to think about? What are the things that we're letting to kind of go on in our minds? And I'll say this, there's, there's some things that kind of just pop into our minds. We don't know where the thought came from, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. I'm not talking about that so much as what are the things that we actually allow ourselves to dwell upon? You know, sometimes you can't control what pops into your mind, but what you can control is what you do with that thought once it does come into your mind. Do you allow yourself to kind of play it out? Do you allow yourself to dwell upon it, to think about it, to ruminate on it? What are the things that we're letting to play out in our mind? One of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves often when it comes to our desires is, if I was to have this thing that I desired, what else would need to happen for that to be true? Who else would need to be hurt? Who else would need to lose out? What sins would I need to commit? What, what would be the consequences if I actually were to get the thing that I wanted? See, I think that question and questions like it can help us to recognize some of these harmful thought patterns and put a stop to them so that they don't lead to anything else down the road. But the question still becomes, what about situations that aren't so clear? What about situations where you look at something and say, well, that's not necessarily going to lead to sin. It's not necessarily going to lead to someone missing out. How do we navigate things in those situations? And and I want us to recognize and to hear the, the fact that not every desire that we have is necessarily coveting. I think it's important for us to recognize that we can have some legitimate desires for good things. And your outline says just that. It says, God places in us legitimate desires for good things. When I was in Bible college, I did a Hebrew language class, and we learned a whole bunch of different phrases, and and I forget most of them, but there's a few of them that still kind of stuck with me to this day. One of them was uh, Boker Tov. That just means good morning, so, you know, good morning to you all. But the other one uh, was Matzah Isha Matzah Tov. has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Matzah Isha Matzah Tov. And as a, as a young man in Bible college, this was my favorite Hebrew saying because it roughly translated, it's from uh, Proverbs 18, verse 12, roughly translated, it means something along the lines of, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? And so me and my buddies in Bible college, we'd say, matzah isha, matzah tov. And it was kind of our, our little phrase because we all desired to find a wife and thereby to find a good thing. And for some of us, we were able to get married out of Bible college, and it was great. And, and I want to just say, there's, there's nothing wrong with desiring good things that God has created. right? So God has created all kinds of amazing things in, in creation, and he's allowing us to enjoy those things. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with desiring a spouse. There's nothing inherently wrong about desiring a family or desiring a job to provide for that family, to desire friends that you can do life with or a church that you can call your home. There's good desires that God places in us for good things. The difficulty comes, though, in trying to figure out the stuff in the middle. Because on the one hand, you have the things that you say, okay, I know I shouldn't desire that. I know that would be coveting. I know that would be wrong. It would lead to a bad place. On the other extreme, you have the things that are the the really good things that you know you're supposed to desire, like God's kingdom coming. You know you're supposed to desire Christ and and, and his name being glorified. But oftentimes what you find is you have things in the middle that are maybe neither good nor bad, or maybe they're even good things, but you worry that your motivation for wanting them might be off in, in some ways. We actually see an example of this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is talking to the church about spiritual gifts. 
And if you think about it, spiritual gifts, they're just, they're an amazing thing. There's something, one of the best things that God has given to his people, spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, to carry on the work of ministry, to glorify God. And Paul's talking about all kinds of spiritual gifts. He's talking about things like wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, talks about prophecy and tongues and teaching and all these gifts. And he's saying, there's a problem though in the church. Because what's happening in the church is people are looking at the spiritual gifts that other people have and they're looking at them jealously and saying, I want to have that spiritual gift. And the reason that they're doing this is they have kind of this hierarchy that they've developed and they're saying, well, these are the good spiritual gifts because these are the ones that everyone sees. These are the ones that make people like you and and respect you and give you honor. And these are the spiritual gifts that even though they might be helpful for building up the church, they're not really glamorous. People don't actually see them that much. People aren't going to respect you more if you have them. And so the church is saying, we want the good gifts. We want the ones that are going to make us look important in front of other people. And Paul hears that. And he writes a letter to them and he rebukes them and says, you guys are doing this completely the wrong way. Now think about that. Spiritual gifts, right? One of the greatest things that you can desire and yet Paul still rebukes them because they're doing it from the wrong motivation. They're doing it from this desire to make themselves look better compared to others, the desire to be recognized. And Paul says, you got it all wrong. And of course, this is where we get 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we often call the love chapter. It's in this context that Paul is saying, rather than focusing on what spiritual gift you can have to make yourself look the best, you guys need to focus on actually loving each other as Christ called you to. In chapter 14, he says, if you actually want to have the good gifts, here's the way you define them. The good gifts are the ones that actually build people up and help the church and help the body of Christ, not the ones that make you look good. But you have this case where a good desire... And a wrong motivation come together, and it's, it's actually not that healthy of a thing. It's hard to believe, but it's been about six years now since my wife and I have been living in Burnaby. Almost uh, six years exactly. I think next week will be, will be the date that we moved here. And it's funny looking back because things were so different six years ago. Uh, we, we came here in our minivan. We were dro- driving from Alberta, and all of our possessions that we had were in that minivan, right? We were just newlyweds driving to, to, to Burnaby. We'd never been here before, really didn't know anyone in the area. And we were excited because we were coming to do a one-year pastoral internship here at Willingdon Church. And so we were, we were really excited, and we were kind of excited to think, okay, after this one year is over, uh, I guess then we'll start thinking about putting down roots. We'll start thinking about getting settled and, and all the rest. And then, of course, one year turned to two, and two years turned to six, and we started to realize, okay, it looks like this is where the roots are going to be put down and, and where we're going to be settling, and, and it's been great to be, uh, be here this whole time. Uh, but something happened a few years into our time here when we started to realize that, okay, it looks like Willingdon's going to be not just a short-term, but actually a long-term part of our lives. One of the things that I started thinking about a lot was, well, if this is going to be where we're putting down roots that obviously means I'm going to need to find a house somewhere, buy a house. And I think this expectation came just from my upbringing where most of the families that I knew of or most of my friends' families, everyone you know, got married, they had kids, and then they bought a house. And usually in that order as well. And so I thought, okay, I've gotten married, I have kids, I've kind of settled in this area, so now obviously I need to buy a house. And I don't know if you guys have noticed or read a newspaper in the last six years, houses aren't cheap in Burnaby. And so there was a little bit of a problem there. How do I make this work where I have a desire for a house, but I'm unable to actually get into the housing market? 
And it, it seems like a trivial thing, but it was actually something that consumed my thinking a lot of the time. This desire for a good thing, I thought, a house, but it became this unhealthy thing where it was all I thought about a lot of the time. Right? And you do all these kind of mental gymnastics in your mind where you think, well, maybe if I move an hour away and just commute in, I can find something you know, affordable you know, further away and then kind of just commute in and live life that way. Or you think, you know, maybe if I get some friends together, we can get you know, into the community housing thing and we can kind of go in on something together and we can make that happen. And you think about people in other parts of the country and you have this jealousy because, oh, isn't it so nice to be able to live somewhere where houses are more affordable? And I remember going through this season where it was just something that I always was on my mind, it felt like. Just when am, when am I going to get a house? How are we going to get a house? When can I buy a house? And what that did was it, it actually didn't allow me to celebrate with people who were experiencing good things. Right? It was almost like if someone had a house or if someone was buying a house, that meant they had something that I didn't have and I needed to somehow rationalize in my head how that could be fair and how that could be the case. Right? So in your head, you're saying things like, well, you know, they must have had a family member help them out a lot or something. Or you know, they must have gotten the market 20 years ago when it was more affordable. Or they must have really high-paying jobs and be doing really well at their work. And it was almost like I couldn't be excited for people. I couldn't celebrate with people because I had this desire for something that they had, and I didn't have it yet. And it was this time of, of my life where you just kind of replaying and replaying these same thoughts over and over again, this desire that you have that's not being fulfilled. And I imagine probably there's some of us today that are in the same boat that are, you know, in similar situations. And I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I remember it was pretty abrupt coming to a place where I was able to actually be content with the situation that God had put us in. And in looking at at the situation, I was able to say, God, thank you for the house that you've given us to live in, the, the place that we're able to rent. Thank you for the, you know, the church that we're... And, and just being able to come to a place of genuine contentment for the situation that God had put us in. And I'll tell you what, that changed so much that at the same time, nothing really changed. Because the truth is, like, in terms of situationally looking from the outside, nothing actually changed in our life, but everything changed because once you get to that place of contentment, you don't have to be striving anymore. You don't have to always be searching for that thing that you think you're missing out on. You don't have to always be thinking about that thing that you think you're missing out on. You can actually come to a place of peace in your life. Because the truth is, when I was coveting a house, all that really added to my life was stress and anxiety. It didn't add any any benefit to my life. And again, when you think about it, you might say, well, isn't a house, like desiring a house, isn't that a, a good thing? Isn't it, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with desiring a house, but my motivation for that desire and the, the places I was taking it to were unhealthy. I was, I was envious. I was fearful of missing out. I was comparing myself to others. My motivations were wrong. You see, so often when we have a good desire, it can often come with mixed motivations. Sometimes we're motivated by fear and anxiety, right? Fear that we're not going to have enough. Fear that we're going to miss out. And again, in Matthew 6, Jesus deals with this where there's people who are worrying about things. And Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. You say, Jesus, those are all really important things. Those are all good things to think about. And Jesus says, yeah, they're good things to think about, but not when you're doing it because you don't trust your heavenly father is going to provide those things. Sometimes we're motivated by greed or the love of money or just wanting to look a certain way in front of the people that we see 
every day. And the hardest part about this, I'd say, is that oftentimes our motivations are mixed. Right? Oftentimes we'll want something, and we'll have probably five good reasons why we want that thing, and five bad reasons why we want that thing, and we're trying to figure out, okay, what, what are the actual motivations that are really driving me in this? And so we, we need to remember, and your outline says this, when it comes to our desires, motivation is vital. See, it's a, a real temptation. It's a real battle. And it seems like everywhere you look, there's always something trying to capture your attention to make you desire something that you don't have. Right? We, we talk about this with advertising all the time. and They're quite explicitly trying to make you desire things that you don't have. Uh, but even things that are more subtle than that. Right? The fact that most of us in our pockets right now have a device with applications on it, and we can, at any moment we want to, start scrolling through and seeing the very best parts of other people's lives. Right? We can see our neighbor's renovation that they just did. We can see their family vacation that they just went on. We can see the nice meal and the date that they just went on with their spouse. We can see the very best of other people's lives right on demand. If you think about it, if someone told you, okay, you're going to invent something that's going to make people covet, it would be pretty hard to beat social media in a lot of ways, wouldn't it? Uh, because of, of the access we have so often to the very best parts of people's lives that, that make us feel sometimes that desire. Now, what's the solution to this? What's the solution to this battle of coveting? Well, like I said, for some of us, it might mean being aware of what things like social media, like advertising, what that does to us. Now, I'm not saying social media is bad. I'm not saying we should, you know, throw out our phones or anything like that. But just to be aware, for some of us, we know what that constant scrolling through those feeds, we know what that does to our heart. Some of you know what that raises up in you, the feelings of inadequacy or the feelings of of just needing to have what someone else has. And for some of us, part of this battle is just actually being aware of that and saying, I'm going to put a stop to this being a cause of me going down this path I shouldn't be going down. Uh, But of course, that's only a partial solution because let's be honest, the the goal of this is not to just kind of close our eyes to all the good things happening in other people's lives. Right? The, at the end of the day, we, we want to get to past a place, like a, to a place where we can actually rejoice with those who rejoice and not just kind of close our eyes to the good things happening in people's lives. And rejoicing with people that rejoice, that's actually a pretty difficult thing, especially if people are rejoicing in things that we don't yet have. Right? If someone kind of comes up to your level and they, they have an achievement or they get something that you already have, well, we can rejoice with those people because, oh, nice, they're on our level now. We can be happy for them. But when somebody, especially maybe someone that we consider a peer, all of a sudden gets a little bit above us, well, then it's really difficult for us sometimes to genuinely be happy for them and rejoice with them as we rejoice. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we fight this battle? Well, we talked a lot about the heart today. And I suggest it's going to be more than just external things we can do. We need to think about what's going on in our heart. And so in the time that remains today, I want to reflect on two passages of scripture from the New Testament. I encourage you to write down these references, and I would suggest even trying to memorize these verses this week. They're very short, uh, but they're very profound. The first is Matthew 6, verse 33. Matthew 6, verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, what happens so often is when we seek first God's kingdom and when that priority is actually the first priority in our life, it has a way of arranging everything underneath that in its proper place. 
On the other hand, though, if we don't have that as a top priority and somebody else, something or somebody else takes that place, everything else under that becomes all messed up. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's Matthew 6, verse 33. First Timothy 6, verse 6 says this. It says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Now, some of you might have different versions of the Bible that say that a bit differently, but the point is this. Contentment is huge when it comes to the battle against coveting. Uh, Your outline says this, contentment is the antidote to coveting. And, And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. When you're at a place of contentment, when, when you're at a place where you can legitimately stand there and say, thank you, God, for what you've given. I'm satisfied in what you've given to me, and I don't need to look anywhere else. I'm content. All of a sudden, coveting doesn't have any power in your life anymore. Because when you're at a place where you actually can be genuinely content, other people's things don't have that allure because you already have that satisfaction that comes from God. When you have that, that identity that's not formed in the things that you have or don't have, but it's formed in who you are based on who God has made you. It's amazing what that contentment does. And so how do we form this in our lives? Well, it, it doesn't come easy a lot of the time, uh, but I think it, it's worth the effort. And one of the questions I think we can ask ourselves sometimes to just kind of reflect on this is, when I pray, do I spend more time asking God for things that I don't have or thanking him for the things that he's already given me? And here, man, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask for things in prayer because Scripture is clear that we, we should ask God for things that we desire. But if you're anything like me, sometimes what happens is you ask God for something, you ask God for something, you ask God for something, then he gives that thing to you. And then it's kind of like, okay, thanks, God, and now on to the next thing that I don't have. And how often do we need to just stop and just thank God for the things that he's already given to us rather than just focusing so much on the things that we don't yet have? See, the 10th commandment, it's an amazing commandment. It says, do not covet. And what that reminds us of the fact that God is a God that looks past externals and sees right to the heart of the matter. It reminds us that just following the rules externally is not enough. We need a righteousness that comes from the very core of who we are. And what it also does is it promotes generosity. It promotes rejoicing with those who rejoice. It reminds us that we're called to reflect our Heavenly Father. And so let's pray and ask for God's help as we try to do that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who sees to the heart of the matter. Father, I thank you that you're a God you see past the mask that we try to wear and you see right to the heart of who we are. And Father, we admit that that can be terrifying to think about sometimes. And yet, Father, we also know that even though you see to the heart of who we are, that you loved us and you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And so, Father, as we try to respond to that grace, as we try to respond to that love, I pray that you just help us on that journey. Father, forgive us for the places in our life where we've tried to just conform to the external rules, but we've missed the heart of what's going on. And God, we pray that you just transform us this week from the inside out. We can't do any of this without your help. So we pray for your spirit to lead and to guide us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.